This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Welcome to the Saturday edition of Coffee House Shots for Spectators Politics Podcast. It's been quite a week in Westminster with an attempt to save Owen Paterson leading in disaster, not just for Owen Paterson, but for the Tory party in general. And at the root of it is the same question that bedeviled the House of Commons over the expenses scandal. What should MPs be allowed to take? What is appropriate behaviour? When is lobbying acceptable and when does it cross the line? And what, if anything, have we learned in a decade or so since the expenses scandal first erupted? I'm Fraser Nelson. I'm joined by James Forsyth and Isabel Hardman. James, let's go to the question in hand. Owen Paterson was taking £100,000 a year from two companies he was advising. His defence was that, first of all, it's perfectly legal for him to do so. And by the way, it is. Nothing is stopping politicians earning huge amounts. We're talking more than the MP doubling their salary by shilling for corporates. He was hauled up for two infractions. One was that he was meeting them on Commons property. He's not supposed to do that. And the second was that he was doing paid advocacy, in other words, talking to government members on behalf of his corporate clients. But it was still quite within the rules for him to be trousering eight grand a month from corporates. Is that the fundamental problem? Do you think that the rules on what MPs are taking from corporates are too lax? I think you need to distinguish between different types of work. So, for example... I think if someone is, I mean, to take the example of Paul Beresford, the MP for Mole Valley, if someone's a dentist and they carry on being a dentist and getting paid to do that, I don't think anyone would object to that kind of second job, right? Yeah. Or a football referee in the example of Mr. Ross here, yeah. I also would not object to take the highest earner, Jeffrey Cox, frequently criticised. He's on how much? Uh, I think he's only about 400 grand or something like that. From, right. So, but I have absolutely no problem with that because I think he is employing his skills as a barrister, as a lawyer, and that is how he is earning the money. Oh, so, so you've got no problem with somebody earning four or five times their MP salary as long as he's a, an articulate lawyer? Yes, because there's no conflict of interest with the work he does in the House of Commons. And I don't think he's also been paid that because he is an MP. I think when things become more complicated is when MPs are being paid for kind of political intelligence or advice on the political situation. Because I think that comes closer to the issue of the job that they are being paid to do by their constituents. Right. Isabel, in your book, Why We Get the Wrong Politicians, you looked at this. It's a very difficult question, isn't it? How much should we pay MPs? Do the public accept that they have outside interest? Does that make for a more rounded House of Commons? Or will it simply look like greed if it goes the wrong way? Do you think there is a consensus? No, there's not. And there's a really interesting division within Parliament as well between MPs who are in safe seats and have the time and inclination to do all this outside work, and then MPs who are in marginal constituencies. And for them, all of their free time is taken up with campaigning, with turning up to the you know local drop-of-a-hat society just to, to keep their presence as visible as possible within their seat because they're worried about losing it at the next election. And so those MPs don't really have any outside earnings at all because they don't have the time for it. And uh, they have a very different experience of Parliament as a result. 
when there's a debate about pay, for instance, it's very easy for the safe seat MPs to say, oh, well, you know, I don't need a pay rise because my directorships are earning me twice as much as my MP's salary anyway. Whereas for those marginal seat MPs who actually incur quite a lot of costs personally in terms of just trying to carry out their jobs, that pay rise actually means quite a lot more. So you often have a little bit of resentment between the two groups there as well, those who have the other access to wealth and those who don't. And the pay issue is really difficult in and of itself because MPs actually, compared to their equally skilled peers, to those who have a similar level of responsibility, and MPs should be taking responsibility for the making of laws in this country which affect all of us so that that should be a huge responsibility they're not paid uh, the equivalent rate you know there are civil servants who you might argue are less senior NHS consultants I think is the obvious yeah I mean they would argue that if they make a mistake they kill somebody but the point is is that equivalent public servants earn a lot more and so MPs if they're good in their previous profession will be taking a pay cut and for some people, they might think that that's not worth the sacrifice, given how miserable it is to be an MP. And given the topics we've discussed recently, the the risks to your personal safety and life of being an MP, you might think I'd rather stay in my previous job. So the pay issue is very difficult. And one of the things that I always say to MPs when they're anxious about the latest pay rise recommendation from IPSA, which is supposed to be independent and making decisions on their behalf so they don't have to vote on their pay, but they always end up objecting to the suggestion that it should have a pay rise because the public are going to be cross. The point I always make to these MPs is the public are cross with you anyway. They think that you're, you know, buying your champagne on expenses. They think that your daughter's going to private school on expenses. And so to a certain extent, They're going to be cross if you get a pay rise or if you don't get a pay rise. And I often think that MPs need to be less frightened of their own shadows on this and do what's probably better for their line of work. Being an MP isn't a profession and it's not really a trade either. What would be better for their line of work would be for them to be paid in a way that's more attractive so that these outside earnings are less necessary for those whose peers are earning a lot more because this is the very difficult thing to... But, but, but isn't it, I mean, you've got people like Labour's Nadia Whitten, for example, 23 years old when she was elected. Mary Black from the SNP, 20 years old when she was elected. But they could both go straight on on salaries in the high 70s that they'd never get in the private sector. Yeah, absolutely. And Nadia Whittam's a really interesting example because she actually said that she would donate the rest of her salary above the national average income to charity because she didn't need it. Now, obviously, Mm. she she probably didn't because none of her peers are earning that much. She doesn't have any dependents. And we all adjust our expectations of what a comfortable life is according to what those around us are doing and according to, to the stage of life we are at. So this is a very difficult argument to make because... Most voters are not earning anywhere near £80,000. And the idea that an MP should be paid even more than that is understandably quite offensive to them when particularly they feel like they are working just as hard as an MP might be. But I think if we want to make politics attractive and if we want a diverse skill set of people coming in, 
we do not want it to have an off-putting salary. And this is the judgment that MPs make. I actually veer away in my book from saying they should be paid more. I sort of leave it up to people. And I noticed a really interesting argument yesterday on Twitter between two people who had read my book who thought I'd said two completely different things about whether they should get a pay cut or whether they should earn more. But I think it's, as with everything in politics, it's much more complicated than the MPs who want to be paid more would argue, and also then the public who are angry with them would argue. I mean, there have been surveys that ask people what their ideal MP should be like, and that it's somebody who's, I think it's a doctor who's on the minimum wage, who's been to university but never left their hometown, and who is local. And that, to me, suggests that MPs basically are expected to be a completely impossible collection of things, and so they might as well just get on with being who they are. James, had Owen Paterson been fighting on, then he would be looking potentially at some kind of attempt to recall him as an MP. But let's say even if you got to the next election, what do you think people would have been saying to him? First of all, that you broke the lobbyist rules or the fact that you were taking lobbyist money in the first place. Isn't that the sort of, as far as most people are concerned, it's not the fact that he met his clients in his room in the Commons where he should have actually met them in a cafe outside. Isn't the problem that he was shilling for these companies in the first place? I think the question is whether that creates a conflict with the job that he was trying to do. And I think this is. But doesn't then the, the amount of money come into it? If you're getting more money from your corporate sponsors than you are from your day job, wouldn't that so, raise questions so I, about where your loyalty is? So, so I mean, there are three types of second job, right? The, the first type is completely uncontroversial. You know, people who are vets or something or dentists or whatever, right? Like, I don't think anyone wants to stop that, do they? Right? Okay, so the second thing... Well, but what about bankers like Oliver Letwin? He went off to Rothschild yeah, to earn... So, again, I think there, I am relaxed about that on the grounds that he's not been paid for his knowledge of the parliamentary scene. He's been paid for his skills as a banker, his ability right. to construct deals. Mm-hmm. You know, And I think if we want good people in politics, and if we want, for example former cabinet ministers to stick around once they've concluded their time in office. But Theresa May still around. Yeah, but don't take this the wrong way. But as Isabel said, you know, Theresa May doesn't have any dependents, right? And I think that does change the way you think about... Well, if you look at how much she's transferring for the old speech, she's not doing badly either, Theresa May. I yeah. mean, she, she, she's getting paid shed loads of money for giving speeches, but she's still in Parliament. But the thing, again, you might joke about how much she's given for a speech, but I suppose you couldn't say she's been corrupted in that way. If you're working for a company who wants to change government policy, surely that is the yeah, more difficult yeah, area. Yeah, no, no, I, I think that when you are being paid for your knowledge of the political scene, mm-hmm. that is where I think this becomes highly problematic. And being paid for knowledge is one thing as well. Being paid for influence is another. And wouldn't there always be a suspicion if a politician, in the Lords or in the Commons, is getting paid by a company that's in the public sphere, that wants to change policy, that what they really want is that person to give them introductions, to place questions behind the scenes, to basically act as their man in the House of Commons, rather than somebody who is simply giving them advice. I mean, yes, but there are quite strict rules around that, and these are the rules that Owen Paterson fell foul of. And... Anyone who has links to anything that's related to the topic they're speaking on, and I mean, Mm. those links can be quite tenuous sometimes, has to declare it in the chamber before speaking. And you're not allowed to do things like, for instance, email a minister on behalf of the company that you are being paid by. 
you're not allowed to hold meetings with those companies on the parliamentary estate in your office. And that was, again, something that Owen Paterson fell foul of. And so the system is designed to try to erect at least a sort of Chinese wall between the MPs' other life and their parliamentary activities. But there's one argument that you hear quite a lot that that only applies in the, the sort of the good professions that James mentioned, you know, dentists and so on, which is you often get people saying, oh, we don't want MPs who are just sort of parliamentary hermits. We want people with experience of the outside. Now, I have a lot of sympathy with that. I'm not sure paid consultancy that is highly paid, that basically working around those Chinese walls still, that is using your experience of parliament to advise companies on how to become more influential, which is basically what this stuff is. I'm not sure that's really giving you greater experience of the outside world. And I think MPs have managed to push that excuse for far too long. And that was the excuse that was used when Ed Miliband was thinking about cracking down on MPs' second jobs back when he was Labour leader. And we may well see that excuse trotted out again. I just don't think that that would wash with the public. And I don't think that it makes MPs better legislators or solves the problem of cognitive disconnect in Parliament if you're being paid vast sums of money to explain to companies how Parliament works. So James, the Tories now want to change the rules, they still want to change the watchdog. When we're having a look at this, why not basically add another rule to make it clear that politicians should not be getting paid to give their political advice, in other words, code for lobbying? Wouldn't such a rule have kept the Tories out of trouble this time and kept Owen Paterson in his job? Yeah, I wouldn't be comfortable with banning second jobs because I right. mean second jobs, but I would be comfortable banning that third category of second jobs. Third category of second jobs. Sorry, you, you, you're Jeffrey Cox, right? Who so, basically so is a I, hero I, I, uh, I am richly fa- deserves this 400 I am, grand. I am in favour of both Vets and Jeffrey Cox in that I think that Jeffrey Cox, if Jeffrey Cox, okay, so let's imagine a scenario where you ban second jobs entirely. I haven't asked him this question, so I am making an assumption based on how much money he earns from one and how much money he earns from the other. Jeffrey Cox, I think, would probably leave the House of Commons. He would go back to the bar where he would earn even more money because he was working on a more full-time basis. And Parliament would lose a very good legal mind. Parliament would lose someone who I think brings value to the proceedings of the uh, house right you look at when we might well be in a situation where the issue of the northern ireland protocol is a big deal again right who do a lot of tory mps look to to see whether what the government is proposing is legally watertight or not is jeffrey cox because he has a level of knowledge of the law that the average mp does not i think if you were to ban him from being a lawyer And he's not being paid all his money because he turns up and says, you know, there's a planning bill coming and I think it's going to be quite interesting. He's being paid this money because he is a very good advocate. If you were to ban him, you would just denude the commons of advice and knowledge. And I think there's already a problem created by the fact that so many former prime ministers leave the commons straight away after their time in office. Think Cameron, Blair, Brown, because they want to go off and do other things. I mean, Brown, not in his case, but Cameron and Blair wants to go off and make money and didn't want to have to declare it all. That makes the commons a poorer place. Right. I often think this when you look at the debate on AUKUS. Right. I personally disagree with Theresa May about Taiwan. I think the defence of Taiwan is a crucial British national interest. But it's important to have someone there who can raise those kind of questions. And I think if you go down the route of banning second jobs, you're just going to end up with people who've either inherited very large amounts of money or already made their money in the Commons 
on the Tory side, and you are going to lose a lot of experience and knowledge. I think there is a balance to be struck, and I agree with you that people being paid because the company just wants a, a sense of what's going on in politics is, is not a healthy thing. But I think that if people are being paid in the way that Geoffrey Cox is, I don't have a problem with that. I wouldn't ban MPs from writing books. I Could you edit a spectator and be a politician at the same time? I think this is an interesting question. In that, I think the people who should object to that are the readers of the magazine. I don't think anyone could cancel us subscription retrospectively. I think the reason, one of the reasons Boris Johnson stepped down for trying to do both, right, is it is very hard to be an MP and be subject to kind of parliamentary discipline and all that, and also be editing an independent-minded, free-thinking magazine. That's a difficult. Unless you have decided that all you wish to be is a backbench MP and you don't give a stuff about preferment or anything like that. I think that we've got to be careful that you don't end up in the House of Commons, which is entirely made up of careerists, and that people basically climb the curse of Sonorum, get into Cabinet. As soon as they leave the Cabinet, they decide, right, I'm off out of Parliament as quickly as possible because I'm now going to go in and cash in on my interests. You know, I don't mean that would be a healthy political system. My personal view is that I think you should ban most MPs from writing books on the basis of quality, regardless of the impact it has on their parliamentary activities. But I think there's one thing that we haven't discussed here, which is how people get into politics. Not meaning to plug my own book again, which is available in all good bookshops, but that was one of the things that I found was a huge barrier, much more so actually than the salary that MPs receive once they're in the Commons, is the cost of getting into politics in the first place. It's the cost of trying to get your party to select you as a candidate. It's the cost of trying to get selected within a particular seat and then it's the huge cost and I'm talking tens of thousands of pounds here of your own money to be a candidate to stand for election in a constituency particularly again in a marginal constituency I did a survey of people who stood in the 2015 election of all parties and the average for all parties for all types of seats whether marginal or safe personal costs to these people including loss of earnings but also transport rent and so on was £11,000. Now, if you go and look at marginal seats, for Labour, it was around, I think it was £34,000, £40,000 on average that people lost of their own money. There were candidates who didn't stand again in 2017 because they'd lost their seat fight narrowly previously. Obviously, there was a snap election. The party came back to them. They just said, look, I'm still paying off the debts from the last time. And these are huge sums of money. And they're, you know, the deposit for a house. They're an amount of money that a lot of people just do not have that sort of casual access to. And so we are already excluding a lot of people from politics just on the basis of whether they can afford to become an MP, not whether they'd be a good MP. And I think that's a really important thing to, to remember is it's it's all very well talking about whether or not MPs deserve a pay rise once they're in the House of Commons. But think about the people who couldn't even afford to stand and what that does to our democracy, how that skews our democracy in favour of those who are either already professional politicians and can take the time off much more easily or who have independent access to wealth in one way or the other. That's not a good thing for Parliament that we're in this position. Isabel and James, thanks very much indeed. You can subscribe to this podcast, Coffee House Shots, on the iTunes store. You can also check out Spectator TV. Our latest episode is now on YouTube. And you can subscribe to the magazine itself from just £1 a week on spectator.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Thanks for listening and thanks to our producer, Max Jeffrey. <laughs>